God indeed is great, and our focus this morning is His faithfulness. As we continue uh, the season of Lent, we continue looking at this theme of wicked problems. And I said last week that wicked problems aren't simple problems. They have a yes or no answer. And likewise, they're uh, more complex than complex problems, which have a definite path or solution, even though there's several variables. Wicked problems have many dimensions, many factors, no right solution. The right, the best way forward depends on the context of all the factors and people in play. Lament, what we're focusing on, the book of Lamentations in this season of Lent, Lament has many factors and dimensions. There are no easy solutions to the problems that weigh heaviest on our hearts. We contribute to them ourselves, even while we hold ourselves and one another up to God. And so this morning, uh, as I alluded to earlier in the service, I invite you to consider your personal hardships, lifestyle struggles, grief, aging, mental health, even death. How do we bring these things to God? How do we approach God in the midst of our suffering? Or, excuse me, how we approach God in the midst of our suffering? Well, it depends very much on who we think God is and how we think our relationship with God should look. So this morning, we're going to open up Lamentations chapter 2 and see how Jeremiah pictures God's relationship with God's people. So let's do that together. Excuse me. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with a cloud of his angel. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the days of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all of the dwellings of Jacob In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her his kingdom. He has, excuse me, he has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, God has cut off every horn from Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand or his favor at the approach of their enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has stung, strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he, will, he has slain all who, were pla- all who were pleasing to the eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of daughter Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of her palaces and destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for daughter Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces to the, heart, to the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord, as on the day of an appointed festival. 
The Lord determined to tear down the wall around her daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. So far the reading of God's word. As we consider our personal hardships, our, the struggles of our lives, grief and aging, our mental health, and even death of those we love, maybe even contemplating our own death, I want to wonder with you as we begin this morning, what would happen to our faith if, with Jeremiah, we believed that God reigns sovereign both in our celebration that, uh, that Jason talked about, God is with us in our celebration, but also that God reigns sovereign over our suffering. I think our faith would change. We'd be challenged, certainly, and are challenged this morning to consider the words of Jeremiah as he so clearly says that God is in control, that God is responsible for suffering. But I think in the end, we would be stronger as a community and we would find ourselves closer to God. In chapter 1 of Lamentations that we read together last week, we heard the voices of those who were suffering, grieving and devastated when Israel's enemies came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and ransacked the temple. In Lamentations 2, which I just read for us this morning, every single action is attributed to God. God is the subject of every verb. God is the actor in every sentence. Do we believe with Jeremiah that God can be the source of our suffering? In the Old Testament, God repeatedly calls his people back to himself. And he promises us that through, through the prophets that he will punish his people if they don't return to him. In every age and chapter, God reminds his people of his covenant, calls them to return, and warns them of the consequences if they remain in their own ways. I'll give you a few examples. When God passed before Moses and revealed himself to Moses, as Moses had, request, as Moses had asked of the Lord, requested, this is what God said. He said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Hundreds of years later to Solomon, the Lord says, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully, I will establish your royal throne. As I covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have here given you, or go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them. And I will reject this temple, I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples. And that's exactly what happened, what Jeremiah laments in chapters one and two, or in chapter one especially. Even through Jeremiah himself in the, in the book of Jeremiah, which was before, or started at least before the exile, 
Jeremiah says this about the false prophets. He says, they have lied about the Lord. They have said he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. But take warning, Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate. I bring in all this Old Testament background and examples to show you that Lamentations 2 teaches us that God will do what he says he's going to do. God will do what he says he's going to do. God is faithful, in other words. Sunchan Ras, who we referenced last week, and we're going to continue to reference throughout this series, Sunchan Ras says it this way, that the destruction of Jerusalem reveals Yahweh's fidelity or faithfulness to covenant curses, which reflects his fidelity or faithfulness to the covenant itself. If God stays true to his character, he has to judge unrighteousness and injustice because he takes sin seriously. And because God is faithful in bringing judgment upon Israel's disobedience, there is also certainty to God's redemption. Now, I think that God's judgment is difficult news for those of us who have been influenced by what one of my colleagues in ministry calls a prosperity gospel of the emotions. Many of us, in other words, have uh, been taught and internalized in one way or another the belief that God wants us to be happy. And that if we're not happy, then there's something wrong with our faith. But this is not true in Scripture. Nowhere will, nowhere will we find that God's goal is to make his people happy with our circumstances. Only that God wants his people to find joy and peace and happiness in him. Instead, the, the idea that God wants us to be happy is the kind of false prophecy that I referenced last week. This idea that we treat God as a vending machine. That we can put in certain inputs and then we can get out the happiness or the reward or the treat that we want. But the good news of the gospel, thank God, is not simply a matter of putting something in and getting out the reward that we want. Instead, the good news challenges us to wonder whether we care more about the things of this world, the things that we have invested time and money into, the sacred cows that we have, or to use the Old Testament example, the golden calves, or whether we are willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ and for God's kingdom. God's judgment is so difficult for us, I think, because it means that we do not get everything we want. It means that God says no to us. That God says no to sin. And also that he's faithful to punish his children when we sin. Now, perhaps this shouldn't be surprising to us as Christians. After all, many of us, even here, are parents or children. And imagine if, for a moment, parents, if this was your attitude toward your children. If you thought as a parent, my job is to make my children happy. Imagine how that would go. Imagine how great that would be, kids. No. 
Imagine how, un, uh, how entitled and undisciplined, how bratty your children would be if they were never disciplined, never told no. Parents can laugh. I had like three times, actually four times in the last month, parents tell me about kids who, as they were going upstairs yawning, were like, I don't want to go to bed. But parents' limits and children's bedtimes are not just for the child. They're for the whole family to flourish. Parents know well that discipline and healthy rhythms help the whole family to function. Now, let's consider the whole family of God for a moment. Global trends in Christianity. This is an oversimplistic picture behind me, but based on uh, data that was available first in 1910 and then again in 2010. So two data points 100 years apart in three main areas in our world. The, the global west, the global east, and the global south. It's no secret that the church in the west is rapidly declining. We might like to excuse or forget that year over year and decade over decade, churches in the West have declined and the Christian Reformed Church with them. We might like to say it's just a result of environmental factors. We might like to blame it on everybody else. But let's not forget that so too would God's Old Testament people. They were eager to blame everyone else. To simply say it was a result of their environment. But our reformed view of God's sovereignty does not allow us an interpretation of our current situation apart from God's judgment. Apart from, to use Jeremiah's words in Lamentations 2, apart from God tearing down our strongholds and withholding his right hand, that biblical picture of his favor. In many ways, God has said no to his church in the West. We share and shoulder together God's judgment as a community. Not just, not specifically here at River Park Church, but the broader church in the West. So what then is our way forward? We can throw a fit. We can say, no, we don't want to go to bed. Even as we yawn. Even as we distract ourselves from conversations with God to go quick check our phone a minute. It's an important piece of perspective for us, I think, to realize that God is doing again what he has done throughout history. God's job is not to make you or I happy. That God is doing what is best for his whole family. And I know the chart behind me is overly simplistic because it only has a few data points. But as the church declines in the West, we can see that's growing by leaps and bounds in the global East and the global South. On a large scale, we can see God's faithfulness even in his judgment. What is God doing? The other thing that has happened over the last hundred years, is that thousands and tens of thousands of immigrants 
God has brought from the global east and the global south to the west. We can see God's much bigger yes in continuing to be faithful to his people even as we experience his no. Soon Chen Ra suggests that Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, reminds us that God's sovereignty in judgment also directs us towards God's sovereignty in restoration. If we trust that God's covenant loyalty to the church is predicated on his will, on his will, and not on our own will, then we should be more willing to embrace what God is doing in global expressions of Christianity. Lament calls us to reflect on God's judgment and return our focus back to God. We only lament, and we need to lament, when God says no. Lament directs our anger and our sorrow and our pain back where it belongs, with God, who is responsible. I don't mean to say that it's God's fault or that God is the cause of all of your, your sorrow or your pain. God is not to blame. What I mean is that God is responsible. He's powerful and attentive. He is in control and not only able, but eager to do what is best for you and me. What is best for us? even when we don't agree about what's best. In lament, we make a shift. We stop asking God to bless the work of our hands, and instead we cry out to him in anger, in sorrow, in frustration. We cry out to him. We begin to allow God to shape us with his hands, however he decides is best. Karl Barth, uh, Swiss-German theologian, who's famous, most famous for his critiques of Nazi Germany, wrote about the suffering and the decline in his day, the nose of God. He said, the final word, meaning that God's final word, is never a word of warning, of judgment, of punishment, of a barrier erected, of a grave opened. We cannot speak of God's final word without mentioning all of these things. The yes cannot be heard unless the no is also heard. But the no is said for the sake of the yes, not for its own sake. In substance, therefore, God's, final and la- or God's first and last word is yes and not no. This is what we're building to this morning. That all of us, in very personal ways that are u- unique to each of us, and not shared by others, not even known sometimes by others. Each of us and all of us experience God's no in our lives. Husbands and wives grow apart as they face the challenges of immigration. Children feel the pressure of their parents' expectations so they don't speak their minds but drift away. Our bodies break down as we age. Our emotions and minds crack under the weight of our world and the weight of the stresses in our lives. And we cry out. 
God, heal my marriage. God, save my child. God, restore my strength. God, give sanity and peace. God, save my loved one from death. So often in our broken world, God's answer seems to be no. Not just seems to be, but it is no. Lamentations reminds us to use the words of Karl Barth, that God's no in judgment and in punishment actually assures us of God's yes that is to come. God faithfully judges his people for their sin, for our sin, so that he might restore and purify us. God faithfully works to restore and purify his world, us included. God faithfully is working to bring the causes of all of our suffering to an end. And even as he works, he refuses to work against us. He doesn't override our free will and force us to do what he wants. But God's withholding some or even much of what we desire as his children comes as he prepares to give us what Ephesians 3 says immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So then God does not give us according to our power or our will, but according to his. And if this is the curve of the the story or the arc of the story of redemption, and if God is in control then our personal pain and our personal suffering are within God's control as well. When we cry out to him, we invite God's spirit in our lives. It's because we have heard God's no that we begin to look for where he is saying yes. We begin to wait for his yes. We devote ourselves to seeking his face. We make a shift. We stop asking God to bless the work of our hands. We begin to ask, or we begin to allow God to shape us with his hands, however he decides is best. God uses personal suffering to soften our hearts so that he can change our lives. Illness, divorce, broken relationships, battle with mental health, addiction, all kinds of loss. We recognize in Lent that our suffering is greater than ourselves. And so in lament, crying out to God, we confess that we cannot change it by ourselves. We do not have the last word in our world or even in our own lives. God has the last word. And God's last word is yes. God's word to you is yes. Yes to wholeness. Yes to healing. Yes to restoration. But it's healing and wholeness and redemption God's way, not our way. A good friend of mine said to me many times, When we pray to God for healing, whether it's physical healing or healing of a relationship or healing in our own hearts, we can know that God will say yes. It's just a question of when. If he will heal us in the moment, 
if he will heal us through medicine and over months and years, or if he will heal us when we see him in glory. God's answer is always yes. And this is the life of faith. Looking to God and trusting him to say yes in his time and his way, even as we cry out to him. To go all the way back to the garden, the Garden of Eden, we remember that death itself, God's, or the biggest no in our world, that death itself is actually a precursor to God's final yes. When we read the story of Adam and Eve being removed from the garden, we usually read those three curses that God has, and then we stop there. Cursed is the serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground. Cursed is the man, the, the, the work of the garden will be difficult, or the work on the ground will be difficult. And cursed is the woman to have pain in childbirth. But in the very next verses, verse 22 of Genesis, 1, Genesis 3, the Lord says, The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. For God, it's not acceptable that a person would know good and evil and live forever. To put another way, God's eternal plan for his people that we see in Revelation is that we would know only good and not evil. Revelation holds out for us a picture of a world that's free from sin and evil, free from suffering, from the dirtiness and defilement that Lamentations talks about. A picture, Revelation pictures a world where God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language are gathered together and never alone, but with God and a part of his family forever, knowing only the goodness of God that we sang about, the joy of his presence. God remains sovereign over our celebration and our suffering. If he is faithful in facing and judging evil, he will most certainly be faithful in restoring us to himself. Christians have less reason than most to be surprised at the depth of evil and depravity in our world. We know the depth of human rebellion and of God's permission, in our, in our, uh, God's permission of our free will. But as Christians, we also have more reason than anyone to be hopeful. Because our world is not spinning out of control. It's firmly in the hands of our benevolent and all-powerful God, who will make all things right when his time is right. In that hope, let's come to him in prayer. Please pray with me. Father God, as we face the hard words of Lamentations 2, your judgment over your people, and as we face the hard realities of our own lives, of society and our world writ large, many of which we've already named today, and of our own personal lives, our personal struggles and griefs and pains, which you know. Father, as we face them all, 
as we reflect on the ways in which we have heard you say no to us in so many times and so many ways. Father, help us to see where and how you are saying yes to us as well. Help us to look forward to the redemption that is coming, where we can be with you forever in your coming kingdom. But also as the New Testament teaches us, as Jesus teaches us, help us to see your yes in your kingdom coming already now. Your spirit present with us already now. Your body gathered for worship already now and scattered through into our places in the world this coming week. Father, as we sang this morning, we wonder how long. We wonder if we wait in vain. And we look for you to give us hope again. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.